do, 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 do. Here we go. My name's Todd. And this is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 592. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And who doesn't want to feel outstanding? And always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, we have a special guest with us. Her name is Soraya Shamali. She wrote a book called Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. And just so everybody knows, this was recognized as a best book of 2018 by the Washington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Autostraddle, and NPR, and has been translated into several languages. How I found out about Soraya, Kathy's known her for, known about her for a long time, but um, I was having a conversation with somebody at an organization called The Representation Project, which Kathy and I are huge fans of, and I found out that Soraya was the director, and then, you know, one thing led to another, and here we are talking about uh, Soraya's message that Kathy and I feel uh, in alignment with. And then the last thing before I welcome Soraya to our podcast is this is what it says on our on our, uh, her homepage that I just found this morning, which I thought was good. She says, I write about gender absurdities, sexual violence, free speech. And she says, I'd rather laugh than cry while doing it. And I feel like that kind of is a wonderful summation of your work. So Soraya, thank you so much for joining us to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Todd and Kathy. I'm delighted to be here today. And my job as the one man in this uh, trio of um, conversation is for me basically to check myself and (laughs) shut up and let the women talk a little bit. I'm going to obviously not escape or remove myself from it, but I really want to be cognizant because sometimes, hey man, I love hearing myself talk. So I'm going to just be quiet for a lot of it, but I also have some things I want to share. So Sweetie, why don't you start us out? Sure. Um, and you don't have to be quiet, Todd. That's um, not... No. We're trying to find uh, equilibrium and connection, not necessarily shutting down. Um, but uh, but I appreciate you wanting to listen to our conversation. But it, it's... Um, like Todd said, I've, you know, I read Sarai's book a long time ago, or to me a long time ago, a couple of years ago when it came out. And then um, I've been sharing her message uh, with my college students at Dominican. And then I have a book coming out in February and I have some of her quotes in it. So what a thrill it is to have her here. Um, and in her book, for those of you who have read it, um, Rage Becomes Her, there's different um levels of talking about women's rage. You know, I love the name of your chapters, by the way, you know, just the way you, you describe, um, you're able to pull together a lot of different, like the, the macro, you know, on the political level, obviously, you know, the internationally, how we view, you know, gender, but I want to start with the really basic at home level of women. Okay. So I wanted just to start with a story that one of the um, experiences that I've had being married to Todd is that I've had to, over time, explain to him um, the difference between our experiences. Uh, number one, I'll just start with this story. There was a time Todd and I have lived together for a long time, and he, when I would, when we'd go to bed at night, I would say, "Are the doors locked?" And he would kind of make fun of me, like, "Geez, I don't think you ever use the word neurotic." But there was a lot of like... There was an energy of you're doing this wrong. Why are you so worried? We live in a good neighborhood. Why are you so worried? Why are you so concerned? And I had to, over time, initially, I will say, when we were first married, I was a little more like, um, I wasn't as outspoken. So I was a little more like, well, maybe he's right. But I lived in Chicago a long period of my life. Like I'm, I, I knew he wasn't, but I was also, you know, catering to those gender yeah. norms. But 
this conversation, I was eventually able to share with him, women lock doors. This is what we know to do in our homes, in our um, in our cars for reasons that he doesn't understand. And I guess I just want to open up to you, Sarai, like having this conversation just in our homes about the difference between women's experiences and men's experiences. Like how do right. you begin those conversations uh, either with women and helping them speak about it or helping men understand why our lives are so different? Right. So um, that is really central, I think, to our, as a culture, being able to move forward, having intimate conversations about intimate inequality, because that's what it is, right? And we have to acknowledge in our own family units that we are not all equals and that we aren't all equals as human beings or as citizens. Mm -hmm. And so that can be very hard, particularly in a culture in which purportedly we are equal, this is the prevailing idea, right? And so even, even though we all know from experience that this is not true, some of us can afford to ignore it and some of us can't. And so we do. We, they, we don't just lock our doors. Like I've written for years about the costs of being a woman and going through the world. Yes. You know, we spend a lot more money just trying to keep ourselves safe because we grow up in a culture that says you have to keep yourself safe because we don't hold violators accountable. Mm -hmm. We don't think of misogyny as a cultural problem. We think of uh, violent acts of racism or sexism as a bad individual, mm -hmm. right? Like a, a rotten apple. Not we, we don't care to look at the systemic problems. And so I think that I remember years and years ago, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu saying rape, should be a dinner table conversation, mm. which I think most people don't want to hear. Um, but someone like me really takes that to heart, which frankly isn't really easy on your family when you decide to talk about rape at the dinner table. But that doesn't mean you sit there and you describe graphic violence that's sexual. It means you have conversations about people's dignity and their rights to safety or consent or... Um, speech, like free speech, right? Because mm -hmm. so often, in fact, when women are trying to claim those rights, the response is to, to threaten them with physical violence and rape. And so I think that one of the issues in homes that are heterosexual um, and have, and I, and I say that very specifically because I think there's a particular dynamic in heterosexual marriages um, that tend to be factor, factories of gender, um, is the way we think of masculinity and femininity. So we have also in my house had the locking of the doors conversation. Mm -hmm. um, the other the conversation that I remember at home, like with my husband, after 25 years, we met when we were very young. We've lived together. We grew up together like in our young adult life. And I remember I was going to, out for a walk one day to exercise. I, I literally, like I had on leggings and sneakers and... I took with me my headphones and a pair of sunglasses. And he's like, how are you going to exercise with headphones and sunglasses? And I was like, people will leave me alone, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want anyone to make eye contact with me or talk to me. And so I use these to block, block them out. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went out that day. And believe it or not, on that exact day, I was followed by a police officer on his motorcycle for an hour. And so I went out of my way on my walk to go up some stairs where he couldn't go with the motorcycle. And that man drove around 
and found me in the other area. I was sitting on a, on a bench and he parked his motorcycle in front of me to start a conversation. Wow. And it didn't feel safe. And I thought I've done everything I can, right? I did the glasses and the headphones and I walked out of my path and here he is anyway, and he's a police officer. Mm-hmm. And so when I got home, I actually thought, do I say this to my husband? Like, do I have to explain exactly what happened here in the last hour and a half of my life? And in fact, I did, mm-hmm. you know, um, because we just grow up learning to be silent about it. Mm-hmm. And so I've had these conversations with my brothers and their responses. It feels like we grew up in two different worlds, even though we were with each other constantly. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. And so I mm-hmm. agree with you. It's hard. And I think it's made harder because men are expected to protect us. Mm-hmm. And part of masculinity is providing and protecting. Mm -hmm. And if you understand, which Me Too has made very clear, that that is an impossible task for any individual man, then that is, I think, a deep threat to identity for men. Because they can't quite do it the way they're expected to. So we're recording this on March 22nd, and I get this uh, awesome email every day from the Daily Skim. Most of us know who that is. Um, And... I guess this goes out to you know, most of our listeners, not the most, the majority of our listeners are female, but there's a lot of males that listen to this, and I obviously work with men. And this is just today. Turkey made it harder to prosecute domestic, domestic violence. In 2011, Turkey signed the Insta, Istanbul, Istanbul. Con, Istanbul Convention. The European Treaty, ratified by 34 countries, called on governments to commit to ending violence against women prosecuting those responsible, protecting the victims, and promoting women's equal rights. But that hasn't always happened. In Turkey, femicide, which is the murdering of women and girls, has reportedly tripled in the last 10 years. At least 300 were killed last year. And it goes on to say how Turkey has repealed that. You think like, okay, good idea. Let's ratify this treaty to make it easier and helpful to protect those who are... Uh, having violence go against them. And I say this because there's some guys that are like, this is blown out of proportion and it's not that big of a deal. And just in the last week, there's been like dozens of stories talking about how this is an epidemic. And my invitation to everybody, but especially the men, is that treat this with the regard that I believe it deserves. And Soraya, that is like, so what Todd just said, okay, and he's he's always making those announcements to men, if it be on, you know, Zen Parenting or if it's in men's group, but there's got to be something more below that. Because when you say that to men, you know, treat this with, you know, with respect and reverence and understand that this is a real thing. What, how, how do we really do this? How do we explain? Because, I mean, I can, I can talk about a thousand stories that have happened in the last year that there has been a, either a blown out of proportion. It's not really an issue or it was the woman's fault. The one, the story you just told is so similar to the woman who was killed in England, uh, murdered in England by a police officer last week. Exactly. And she, same thing. She had mace or it, I just read a story. I don't want to say it wrong, but she did all the things just like you did to keep herself safe as if it's completely her responsibility. And yet she it was still doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. No, it doesn't matter. And, and I think the difficult part for men is understanding that men as a class of people around the world derive benefits, privileges, and entitlements 
from the oppression of women and from the violent oppression of women. And so, you know, that's hard. People don't want to give up privileges, entitlements, and power. No one does. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when men frankly convince themselves that they're good men, what does that mean? That means they're not raping us? Mm -hmm. Like, seriously, mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a good man? Mm -hmm. And so the bar, frankly, is so low. You know, I mean, I remember when one of my daughters was 14 and she came home and she said, you know, what is it with boys? Because they think that they ask you something, you say no, and then they ask you 10 more times and you get worn down and you finally say yes. And they think that that is consent. Mm -hmm. And she had pointed to something that's really centrally important, which is that acquiescence isn't consent. Mm -hmm but that we teach boys that if they just keep persisting and that in fact to be real men, they have to win and they have to dominate and they have to persist and that sex is a war, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the lessons we teach young children about interpersonal dynamics and gender are really corrosive mm -hmm. to equality and people's well-being as adults um, or even as adolescents and young children. And so the lessons really can't start early enough. I mean, a lot of people don't want to talk to children about inequality, whether it's racial inequality or gender-based inequality. But any boy or girl growing up together understands the double standards. You know, I was, I forgot because we have three daughters, what it's like to live with boys. I have two brothers and a sister and many years ago, not even many, five years ago, our nephew lived with us for a while. And we live in the city, we live in Washington, DC, and pretty much the the night is off limits to women mm -hmm. all over the yeah, world. True. Um, but even in a busy city, that's true. Uh, you know, a few years ago, a woman in my neighborhood was running at 6 p.m. Again, she did all the things. She was running in a busy neighborhood. She was, there were people everywhere, and a man pulled out a knife and stabbed her. Mm -hmm. Six o'clock, like on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't give you confidence, right? You can go out just even to the shop around the corner if you need milk. But... This, my nephew got his sneakers on. It was at 8.30 at night and it was dark. And all of us were like, well, what, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'm going to go for a run. And my daughters, just their jaws dropped. They're like, what? Like, how, how can you do that? But because we didn't have boys and girls in the house, we didn't have that immediate compare and contrast all the time. Mm -hmm. But even in families that do, the fact that women can't go out at night and have to pay for cars or Ubers or taxis or gyms or mace or whatever it is, never turns into, let's talk about what men don't have to do mm -hmm. as a gain in their lives, right? Like men can go out and start whole companies where they can make profits for women buying stuff they don't need to keep themselves safe because it won't work, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so... I think it's hard. I think it's hard because you have to say you get to do all of those things because we don't. Yeah. Like in the Sarah Everard case, there were people say the police went house to house and said women stay inside. We're now imposing a curfew. Mm. And the women I know in England are like, impose the curfew on the men. What? Right. We're not doing this to people. But the, the, the culture doesn't think that way, you know. And in fact, it should be a curfew. If you're going to impose a, cur a curfew, in a situation like that, it should be on the men. 
Yeah, there's so many stories that I can echo that you're saying, um, Soraya. You know, one of our good friends was driving his uh, son and his niece and nephew to Indiana University uh, for their freshman year, and he had this big, long conversation about how to keep his niece safe on a college campus. Or a conversation yeah. with her about how she should keep yeah, herself. Yeah, how she should keep yeah. Yes. It was really on her, like, right, you know, keep right. your drink in your don't, hand. Don't drink, go to right. fraternities, like, you All know, have that. a buddy system, carry your mace, your rape whistle. And what we get as men is very little uh, direction. And um, it's funny, like, one of the things that I was just thinking about, you know, the whole... Meghan Markle, Piers Morgan thing. We haven't talked about yet that on the podcast, but what I've been doing in the last 10 years is really kind of highlighting, calling out what I consider immature masculinity that, and for for this example, Piers Morgan displayed where he was just calling out Meghan Markle. And then the minute that somebody else, you know, took exception to his words, he got up and walked out like a little boy who didn't get his way. Mm -hmm. Took his toys and went to the other room. And what I, what I want to do, the the pivot that I'm trying to make is instead of focusing on Piers Morgan, because I've been doing those types of highlights for years and it doesn't seem to engage with the guys as much as I wanted to. So instead I want to focus on Alex, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Beresford. He's the weatherman who called Pierce out. That was wonderful. So Tony Porter, who um, is the CEO of A Call to Men, he spoke at one of our conferences. We're huge fans of his work. And what he taught me is instead of let's, instead of me as a man calling men out for their immature masculinity, let's call men in Mm -hmm. so that we can learn from Alex who spoke up against peers. Who's this? So that's, that's something I'm trying to do because I'm trying to come up with a a different way to help men understand. And I have a lot of work to do. So it's not like I'm pointing the finger all over the place. I do not have the empathy. I do not navigate through the world in the same way females do on this planet. And I'm trying to tune up my empathetic um, radar, but it's really hard to because I've been brought up in this world where I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Right. And I think, too, it's interesting because in in both of the cases you just described, there's also a racial aspect, right? Absolutely. And so it's just that, uh, you know, in, in Western culture, European Western culture, the people who've had power for so long are elite white men. Mm-hmm. And their existence, uh, their able-bodiedness usually, their experiences navigating the world with power define everything, define our laws, define our education systems, define the internets like governance, you know. And so what we've done is instead of evaluating how to build a world and a culture and systems based on the most vulnerable in society who face the greatest risk and harm. We've done all of it ass backwards. Can I say that? Absolutely. Um, um, And we've, we've calibrated it all to the most powerful and that just lends itself to greater risk and abuse and harm. And so, you know, I think we need to also be saying we've been talking in terms of gender but it's always intersectional, yeah. right? A, a, a white man walking through space um, has a different way of interacting with a white woman than he would a brown or black woman. Yeah. And the fact is that certainly in the United States, um, all of us are viewed to some degree as public property, mm-hmm. as a resource for commentary or grabbing or sex or whatever. But for black women in particular and brown women in particular, 
um, that effect is compounded by racial inequality and xenophobia. And so the vulnerabilities are greater. And if you go a step further and you think of trans women, mm -hmm. I mean, I write a lot about sexual harassment on the street and online, but the most vulnerable to violence are black trans women mm -hmm. because they embody everything we just discussed in terms of power and inequality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I appreciate you making that point because when you were saying uh, before about we have to talk about rape at the dinner table mm -hmm. and all of those compounding features, like it's, you know, we have to talk about race at the dinner table. We have to talk about inequality at the dinner table and how they, as you said, they intersect and they are, it's not just, you know, I, I found that um, at the beginning of me working with women, it was just, I would always say women, women, women. Yeah. And then when I started to really understand statistics or do my own writing about it, I'm like, not, this is not just yeah. women. I have to be very thoughtful specific. yes specific thoughtful and educated not just uh, not just try and say it the right way again it's like this is really the statistic and this is really mm -hmm. who's getting harmed um in on that note i you know i'm going to i'm i don't know which way i want to go but i'm going to talk about childhood for a second then i want to go into more of a political realm but um you know we're talking about what men learn or what they don't learn or what they don't see. So obviously there is a big component here when it comes to parenting of how we can, you know, just like we were talking about talking about this around the dinner table, but as parents raising, um, you know, all genders of children, like what kind of discussion we need to have. And I, I actually just, I read something and actually I don't, maybe I just read this in your books or I am not sure. So if I'm quoting you yeah. tell, you know, you can tell me, but it was something about that millennials actually have a higher rate of believing women should be at home yeah. than Gen X. Yeah, so somehow right. we're going backwards in, even though I think a lot of millennials, there's a lot of things maybe they've brought. And, and again, this is not about blaming a certain yeah. section. It's just that statistic. It's shocking to is, me. Yeah. And well, so yeah. What, what are we doing right or wrong here in talking to our kids? So I, first of all, I think it pays to acknowledge that millennials are in their 30s and 40s and having kids. Yes. Um, and so we're not talking about teenagers who also, when it comes to gender, show some pretty neo-traditional attitudes that scare the life out of me. But I don't think it's, it doesn't make sense because, in fact, we went through a huge, immense backlash between 1992 and 2010. So a backlash not just in terms of uh, social attitudes and culture, but politics and the economy and neoliberalism and this focus on choice as somehow always being feminist, mm -hmm. right? Every choice a woman makes does not result in a feminist choice. Like this is stupidity. To, to have, That's like illogic on every level, right? But a lot of the society absorbs that kind of message and um, I think just doubles down on a inequitable status quo. So it doesn't really surprise me that in the past 25 years, we've cultivated generations that have more gender binary and gender conservative ideals. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what I try and say in the book, um, and I use emotion as a Trojan horse to look at all of these issues regarding social construction. And as you said, at all these levels, personal, mm -hmm. professional, interpersonal, political, um, and what I try and convey is that an emotion like anger, as Audre Lorde said, is filled with knowledge. Yeah. 
but whose knowledge counts as credible and important to the society? And why is it that we shut down the knowledge that comes with the anger that girls and women have, even in their own self-defense, right? And when we do that, what's the result for society? Because when we shut it down, we create our, a public void of understanding and awareness, and that then distributes resources and power, and then you end up with the situations that we're in. Um, but when it comes to emotion, what we should, I think, strive for as parents is emotional competence, mm -hmm. not gender distribution of how people feel, which is what we start off with. I sometimes joke that I could write this entire book, the same book with the same research, but just call it Sadness Becomes Him. <laughs> because wow. the same problems that we see with the regulation of anger in girls, yeah. the punishing of anger in girls happens to boys when it comes to to sadness yeah. and there's a danger in pretending there's an equivalence there mm -hmm. um, because there isn't in fact mm -hmm. by denying boys those feelings of sadness or fear or vulnerability we do it because it makes them more feminine mm -hmm. which is a degradation mm -hmm. right we don't want to degrade and that's deeply misogynistic mm -hmm. it's harmful to the boys and the people around them and the men they become and the society we build, but it's harmful in a way that builds power as opposed to um, the situation most women find themselves in in the world, which is subject to power. Absolutely. Um, so I think emotional competence is a goal as adults. You know, we have to unlearn all of this. Mm -hmm. It's every day as a parent is a is an exercise in inadequacy and unlearning from that perspective, right? Because we grow up with these beliefs. Um, and even if we do talk about it at the dinner table, we behave in ways that confound what we believe or say we believe because we're so immersed in these identities that are shaped around these lessons in childhood. Yeah, that's the conditioning runs so deep. And I, I every stage of my professional and personal life, you know, and I no longer say, oh, I got it. I used to say that like in my late twenties, I'm like, I think I got it now. And yeah. now I'm 49 and I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm just scratching the surface of all the conditioning yeah. that I've had. Um, and how even talking to my, um, all of my clients who are women, uh, so much of their issues that we're dealing with now with, you know, and I could go down a list, yeah. um, are from early on sexualization, yeah. um, early on, if it in not even just always molestation or rape, it's yeah. being sexualized when you're six or seven, like objectification. Exactly. And where yeah. that, that switch is most women don't, well, I shouldn't say most, a lot of women do remember that shift, that change of where all of a sudden they were yeah. followed by someone or they were looked at differently or, and a lot of times it's a family member. It's very, yeah. it's a very traumatizing, um, you know, experience. And so, Sarai, this is what I hear from my, uh, from clients and friends for that matter. Again, uh, we have three girls, so I don't have, uh, sons that I'm raising. They love this idea that you were talking about, it's more than an idea. It's a, it's something, it's a monumental shift in how we talk to boys and how we talk about emotions and they worry, well, if I start talking to my boy about emotions, my son, and he becomes that person and there's not enough of mass change, right. he's going to take the brunt of that experience of being the, the, the feminized right. boy. So where, where is this line? How do we explain this to parents? 
So I think of several things, um, and I try and convey this in the book, but progressive parents, um, and All right, before we uh, move on, I do want to talk about uh, our partner of the day, and that is Newsdrop. Uh, Newsdrop's an app on my phone that summarizes the top news of the day. It's quick to read, and the content is unbiased and accurate. It's simple, but it's fantastic for those of us who want to take a news diet and get a break from all the noise. Stay smart by reading short and optimized news summaries of the world's top stories, made for quick reading, factual coverage, and maximum relevance. Two things that convinced me to partner with Newsdrop, uh, trusted sources, their editors carefully assess the stories and sources based on global impact, relevance, and potential bias. If it hasn't been covered by reputable sources, you won't find it on Newsdrop. And then secondly, focus on what matters. Don't sweat the unimportant stuff. They do the hard work of reading tons of news stories and delivering only the most significant headlines so you can do more productive things instead. Read news faster, News made for skimmers. Download the news drop on your iPhone today. So I think of several things, um, and I try and convey this in the book, but progressive parents, um, and I, I use that carefully because I think there are a lot of parents who would identify as conservatives who want this too. They want their children to be emotionally happy and healthy. And they may not say it in the same words I would, but in fact, we have the same objective, right? Which is to have healthy people that we've grown into the world. Um, but progressives don't do a great job of building institutions mm -hmm. because institutions are conservative mm -hmm. by nature. Um, and we have to. We have to be the bulk word for these children and we have to go into schools and we have to talk about authoritarian teaching. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about bias in classrooms, sexual, gender, raced, homophobic. I mean, a lot of people want to talk about bullying, but they don't actually want to talk about what bullying is. Bullying is homophobia. Mm -hmm. It is sexism. It is racism. It's all these adult words we don't want to share with children, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't really understand why. Like I had three children under the age of three and the nightmare of thinking I had to talk to them in baby talk and then real talk was just something I couldn't do. I'm mm -hmm. like, no, these are the real words. Mm -hmm. And why would I teach you a set of words before the real words? Mm -hmm. Because then I would have to teach you the real words, right? Kids are really adaptable and smart. And if they're talked to in age appropriate ways, which doesn't mean dumb language, it means using context um, wisely, I think, mm -hmm. they get it, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm trying to think like, I understand that concern with boys, right? Because on the flip side, arming my daughters with the knowledge of sexism also doesn't make you popular exactly. as a parent or as a child, you know, but when one of my daughters was in third grade, she was paired up with two girls and two boys and they were in a, in a reading group and they went over to a basket and they had to agree on a book to read. And there was a boy who kept tossing aside the books about girls and the books with girls on the cover. And finally the, everyone had agreed on one and he said, no, I don't like that book. It's got, it's about a woman. And so my daughter said, well, what's wrong with that? And he goes, well, look at her. She's like wearing a hoop skirt and it's about a woman. And she said, you know, that's sexist. I read books all the time about boys. And it's interesting to me. And I think you need to give it a, a try. 
And he said, oh, I didn't think of it that way. And <laughs> off they went and read the book, right? But that's a conversation that, frankly, I have been unable to have with some men at a dinner table. Yes. Yes. I, I actually, we've just been recently, uh, Todd and I are big pop culture people. We incorporated into a lot of our work just to kind of give examples, you know, through TV movies and everything. And I have just in the last couple of years been sharing with him how my lens, my protagonist lens has always been through the male gaze. Like, yeah. you know, I had always. to be Luke Skywalker. I had to be, and, and, yeah. and we grew up with it. So I didn't question it. I just, what I could embody, I like, well, people say, right. but what about Princess Leia? No, I wasn't Princess Leia. I was Luke Skywalker. Sometimes yeah. I was Han Solo. And, you know, I thank God I had the Wizard of Oz when I was little, but that was pretty much about it. Yeah. I went, when I went to see Ghostbusters, the reboot, like five yeah. years ago with my, my daughters, I cried in the movie. Yeah. I could cry right now because I had never seen that. Yes. And at the end, when they did like the the uh, credits and had the women like, you know, you know, these are the women starring in it. I had never seen that. Mm. I and know. I was like, this is unbelievable. And then Wonder Woman came out the next year and I was like, OK, but that conversation, I don't think that to your point about that boy in the classroom is like, I'm not going to read about girls that's all we read about is men. The whole wall is covered with men. The, every right. president is a man. We we have to find a way. And, and again, the, you talk about this in your book, but it is a way that we learn and establish a, a empathy is that we really can st- step in other people's shoes. Um, right. But, you know, how do we jump into that conversation? I, I want to note, though, because, well, first of all, I had the same experience you did, although it was a movie called Wajda. Mm-hmm. which was about a young girl in Saudi Arabia. I'm not Saudi Arabian, but mm-hmm. she was the only, I was 48 and I sobbed in the movie because I had never, ever seen a young protagonist who looked like me or felt like me and was the protagonist of a movie, mm-hmm. right? Like I was overwhelmed. And so I'm sitting there sitting next to my husband, literally weeping. And he's like, what is going on with you? Are you okay? <laughs> you know, and it struck me because in fact, he's he's like a, a tall, lanky white guy and everybody he'd ever seen was always a person he identified with. And he didn't need to identify with all the other people, even if he's a very empathetic person. But the amount of backlash to that idea Mm -hmm. is so powerful. I don't know if you remember what happened with the Ghostbusters reboot. Like Leslie Jones, her existence on Twitter became a living nightmare cesspool of racist, sexist violence, mm-hmm. right? Just because the director had the audacity to cast four women mm-hmm. in this role. And I've seen it in boys in school. I've seen it when they're like, what do you mean there's representation and um, there are women everywhere and women are doing everything. And in fact, we're the ones being shut down. These are boys who are 15 mm-hmm. or 16 mm-hmm. who believe that they are being persecuted and sidelined and oppressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that to me is a failure of education and parenting right there. Absolutely. For sure. And we, uh, I'm nodding my head during most of this interview. Um, and, you know, f- what I want to do is to create social change for feminism, which I just think means equality. I think that there's a part of me and the collective masculinity or the collective men that we just kind of like, well, that's not our job. If you want to fix it, go ahead and fix it. And where I come in is through no, um, not through no, but I was born a white straight man. And with that comes a tremendous amount of privilege and power that I really didn't do as much as I needed to, to, to take possession of that influence. And what I want to do is, is use my influence and push it 
outwards so that we can all have that influence. And I feel like that there's this idea that we, um, that we just, that it's your cross to bear. And I'm saying we can get there so much faster. And I'm talking to the men that are listening to this in your home, in your workplace, in your school system. We need to be the one, because the reason we don't speak up as Jackson Katz taught us is social credibility. Like we're scared to be made fun of by other guys. So if I speak up uh, in defense of my wife or this movie, then I'll get made fun of Like, is that, are we that fragile? And the answer is sadly, yes. And I get really kind of reactive. Let me add to that again, pop culture wise. It's like when this is a long time ago and it's just the first one that sprung to my mind. This has happened over and over again, but during the, um, Harvey Weinstein during Me Too, and I remember Matt Damon spoke out about something, didn't speak, uh, kind of was mansplaining something, and everyone was like, oh, he's being canceled. You know, oh, he can't say anything. He wasn't canceled. He's not going anywhere. He just had people, he's just as famous as he ever was, and we can love him as an actor. It's not about shutting him down as a human. It's it's okay to to say to someone you're not correct, and and where where Leslie Jones, if I remember correctly, I don't know she's still on Twitter now because I follow she her, is. but yeah. she you know she had to go through and actually I, I hate to like shift the this topic really quick, but how are you treated on Twitter, Soraya? How do how do you? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually I've spent ten years. I started something called the Speech Project at the Women's Media Center because. About in about 2010, when I started writing full time again after a hiatus, um, I had to do it immersively online, and it was very clear that the like it, it didn't matter what I said. I, I literally could be talking about socks, right? And there was just a level of pushback and vitriol that was sexualized and violent, mm-hmm. and so. What happens to women in the public sphere, whether they're writers or politicians or scientists, for example, who are advocating for public health, is that they get rape threats and death threats and graphic pornography. And that's just an environmental hostility that, again, we're supposed to just absorb as somehow unavoidable, natural and normal. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that didn't quite sit right with me. And I've worked over the years on projects like this to build coalitions globally Mm. that advocate for women's freedom of expression in the face of threats of violence like this. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we, I mean, we, we understand the problem. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, I compare the digital harassment to street harassment because the underlying idea is that you're not safe and you can be hurt at any time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that the society doesn't care very much. I mean, very often people are like, well, we have laws, go to the police, not, you know, Aside from the fact that the police are often implicated in the violence, particularly for black and brown women, although with Sarah Everard, the shocking thing, I think, was that it was a policeman and a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, there is the fact that it's rape isn't reviled in the culture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's formally, um, it's, how, how would I put it? We have, we have laws but the laws are frankly useless to women on a practical, in a practical sense. I mean, less than 3% of rapists ever see the inside of a jail. Exactly. And most of them are going to be black and brown men. Yeah. And in fact, the number of incarcerated men also being sexually violated is probably on par with all the women in the country being sexually violated by strangers, mm-hmm. right? And so that just becomes a sort of complicated hornet's nest. But to pretend that the solution is legal 
is to literally contribute to the problem because that's not the solution. Mm. Exactly. And we, so we haven't been doing this because of COVID, but we used to screen movies all the time. That's how we got to know the representation project so well, because oh, we great. did misrepresentation yeah. and the mask you live in. So that's how we got so connected to all of you. Um, but we usually had a really good turnout, especially for like if we did screenagers or, you know, all those documentaries about the things that parents really have are questioning. The yeah. two movies that nobody came to, The Hunting Ground, we, oh, we yeah. could not fill the theater. We had like 75 people. And I Am Evidence, mm. which was about the rape kits that never that are oh, just yeah. filled in warehouses. Nobody came. I mean, I think I Am nobody Evidence. Wants, nobody, nobody wants, wants to know. To. Oh, and, oh let, my God. and let me add to that. When we did The Mask You Live In, we marketed it. I marketed it to the guys in my community because we screened it in my community. I said, guys, get there. And we had 300 people there and about 270 of them were women. 100%. The idea over and over and over again that we are taught and that we're expected to accept is that women's equality is women's problem to yes. solve. Yes. And that will never work. I know. Because women don't have as much power to make change culturally, socially, technically, politically, legally. It has to be something that men are accomplices in. And so what a lot of women do a lot of feminists do is then appeal to men on the basis of the benefits that accrue to them, healthier lives, better relationships, fair distribution of labor, all of those things. Um, but there is a danger in that, there's a tension in that, because it doubles down on the structure of centering men again. And that's really just a double-edged sword. It's just a reality of what we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I'm going to try try my best not to shame myself here for a second, but last week, Robert Aaron Long killed eight people. Six of yeah. them were Asian women. And my relationship with the news is interesting. I just do a quick thing in the morning, and then I, I don't do much social media. And then one of my friends who's an Asian American wrote this long post about her experience as an Asian American. I'm like, I can't believe how little I really... How, how little time, energy, resources I spent in contemplating the murder of these eight people. Mm. And, and I'm calling myself out here. Like I needed a post from a friend who experienced it for me to really pay attention to it. So my invitation, once again, for the guys out there is the only way we're going to become advocates is if we first start paying attention to it. So I'm trying to do a better job of paying attention to it. And, you know, and it's again, like what we were talking about with the movies is putting yourself in those shoes. You there, it's so easy again, from an intersectionality perspective, you know, those were women it, talking about sex workers, talking about all these different things that we degrade people and their humanity. And then we think they don't matter, you know, that we dehumanize. And so we can walk away from it. But <clears throat> because of time, Soraya, cause I, I, I really do want to jump into one of the bigger messages of your book. Um, because I was like, I did like a, an aha when I read it. Um, and by the way, I would read this at night and Todd would try to be falling asleep and I would like read him things and I'd say, doesn't that piss you off? And he'd be like, aha, uh -huh. yeah. I just need to go to sleep now. <laughs> exactly. Like I'd be like, oh my God, wait, listen to this statistic. I became 
Um, and, and, you know, to his credit, he'd be like, yes, yes. But still, that's how I feel reading this book um, is it's not about that I become more rageful. It's that I feel validated and seen. Mm. That's what it is. It's not about creating the rage. The rage already lives in me. And when I, I use right. that word because of the acceptance I've had of so many things that have happened or that I've seen either experienced or seen other women experience. So, but this was the aha I had or that you wrote was about on the political realm or on the, you know, the realm of like a CEO or, or, or women in that world who are, you know, rising up. So we as a culture feel just fine about women's anger. If they are in their place as a mother, as a teacher, as a nurse, as very stereotypical, if you're in your place and you're angry, like a mama bear, everybody loves them. Mm -hmm. You know, a teacher Mm -hmm. who helps you, everybody loves them. But if you are a woman as a politician or a CEO or a job that is, we define as more masculine, you cannot be angry Mm -hmm. or else you're going. So that that seems so obvious now that I say it, but your ability to pinpoint that because some people be like, but what about this person? We're fine with that anger. But it's only if someone is in a place that we feel comfortable. Yes. And that confirms the stereotypes, right? Yes. That's really, I think, key because we know that so much of so much of trying to get women to be more successful in the world is actually telling them to be like men. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so lean in feminism. I think uh, I had problems with that. The idea of confidence. You know, we're supposed to try and be more confident, even though male overconfidence has endangered the planet, mm. right? Like the, the standards, again, are the way men behave and that women are somehow deficient and have to change and become better at being those things. But that will never work because the ways in which men behave confirm our stereotypes and belief systems about masculinity and gender roles. And when women try and take on those roles, it rebounds against them. Mm-hmm. And so an angry man who is a a president or a CEO or in the C-suite accrues power and followers. People will be convinced by his anger because his anger is understood as a sign of his leadership and, ma- and, and male role. But a woman saying the exact same things in the same ways are penalized over and over and over again because she, in fact, is transgressing. Exactly. And um, the only time a woman isn't transgressing is when she is fulfilling the role we expect her to fulfill, which is to be self-sacrificial and um, put others first. (laughs) And, you know, I think one of the more startling statistics, and I am constantly gathering these because I'm a firstborn Catholic girl and think that maybe data will help, but the fact that the three top jobs for women today is more or less what it was in 1964, and those are all proto-maternal jobs. Mm -hmm. So nursing and teaching, being administrative assistant, being in the service industry, those jobs are all jobs in which women serve others Mm -hmm. and they do the emotional work of serving others and the physical work of serving others. And they do it for little or no pay compared to other job sectors. Um, And if they get angry doing that, that's fine. But, you know, we, as I say in the book, we can be angry as mothers, Mm -hmm. but we can't, we can't be angry about the costs of the expectations and demands of motherhood. That makes us bad people in the eyes of the society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I also, I split two chapters up, a chapter on motherhood as an idea that affects everybody, all women, regardless of their reproductive status. Um, 
and care <clears throat> because it became so evident that this idea of motherhood was important enough to separate from the idea of care and really investigate because so much of women's behavior that's not maternal um, but just human is considered in women selfish and toxic and damaging. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the experience that I've had. I feel like this, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings are like just in itself, like that's the what you just described, you know, and yeah. why that was, and, and there's many others, but that's as you're talking, you know, that's the one that comes to mind to the most of the difference of how anger looks um, and just, you know, the last administration, the you know, how anger looks in a certain you know, g- gendered perspective versus when mm-hmm. women speak up. So, so Todd. So, <clears throat> I feel like we can talk to Soraya for another ten hours. But I wish I've, I. We are like through three chapters right now. Like <laughs> this is. I am. It's. It's disheartening, but I'm hoping people grab this book and get it for themselves because it's the best. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, well, we really appreciate your time. Is there anything else? Um, I, I just want to give you an opportunity to plug uh, misrepresentation or yourself or sure. anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to the Representation Project because I've been a huge supporter of their films and their work, which is really changing hearts and minds and thinking about the way these ideas develop in our society and what we can do as adults and parents about that. So um, the Representation Project uh, started 10 years ago by Jennifer Siebel Newsom when she made a movie called Misrepresentation, which is about representations of women in media that are deeply corrosive to women's leadership and equality and what it looks like, and sad to say, the movie is as relevant today, if not more, than it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, she followed that movie up five years later with The Mask You Live In, which is about the rigidity of masculine ideals and um, many of the things we talked about today um, and how harmful they are, um, again, to boys and men as individuals, but to society. Um, and then she made a third movie called The Great American Lie, which was released in last fall, which is the way these ideas about gender and gender roles work structurally in the economy to perpetuate uh, social immobility and economic poverty and inequality. And um, so we have these films and they all come with curricula and are available to schools um, and community screenings and corporations. But we also have social activism that's built on that, um, sort of wide scale confrontations um, holding particularly media accountable for representations of stereotypes uh, in film or in the news or in uh, press. Um, and then we also have a youth media academy that uh, is really uh, an extraordinary um, opportunity for students, many of them, most of them in communities where this may not otherwise be available, to learn how to tell stories, make their own films, have a call to action, and really shape their communities and their their civic lives, um, and that's what that's what we do. Um, so I urge everyone to please go to the website, therepresentationproject.org, and look at the work that we do. I think many people dismiss stereotypes because they think it's superficial, uh, or there's so many bigger problems in the world. But when you really start to look at the issues that we're talking about of violence and inequality and free speech, and you start peeling back the layers and peeling back the layers, you really do come to a core of our belief systems and how these stereotypes are shortcuts to those belief systems um, and why they have to change. And we know that stereotypes can change. It's Mm -hmm. not as though it's an intractable problem that we're never going to solve. We just Mm -hmm. need a will Mm -hmm. to do it. 
I agree. And I want to tell you that um, if everybody should go to the website and then you should subscribe to their newsletter um, because your newsletter is our like holy grail of like, this is what a newsletter should be. Oh, good. Um, yeah, Todd, every time he gets it, he's like, they always have something that mm. we need. So um, that's just a I way to keep to in touch. It. Yeah. Um, so first of all, sorry, if you can stay on with us after we close out the podcast, I want to ask you a few other questions, but uh, for those of, and I think we might end up doing, um, a virtual screening of the great American lie. Mm -hmm. Is it, I haven't haven't yet seen it, Soraya, but is it safe to say that if we loved misrepresentation, the mask you live in as much as we did, that the great American lie will fall into place? Yes, I I think so. I, I honestly think it's difficult sometimes for all of the reasons we discussed, for a lot of people to who aren't doing this day in day out the way you are the way we are to make the jump from individual focus because we are in such an individualistic society to thinking about things like gender yeah. as structural mm-hmm. right it's not just a matter of how we present ourselves or think of our roles but of the way we distribute roles in the economy right labor how is labor affected by gender stereotypes and norms and by race stereotypes and norms? And what does that look like when you put it together? And what it looks like, of course, is that the vast majority of the poor in the country are women and children of color and black women. And the vast majority of the wealthiest people in the country remain um, white men. Mm -hmm. And that is not accidental. The system is working the way the system is built. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the great American lie really delves into the impact this has on the lives of people across the country. Mm. I can't wait. Soraya, thank you so much. Uh, Soraya wrote uh, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. She is the executive director of the Repre- Representation Project. And yes, I implore people to sign up for that newsletter because it's, I think, one of only two or three newsletters that I actually read on a weekly uh, basis. So, uh, Soraya, thank you so much for joining us and we'll catch you all next week on Zen Parenting Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and feel free to leave a five-star review. It helps people find us. Hey, looking for more support, exclusive content, and an awesome community of parents? Join Team Zen where you'll get zero pressure and 100% support. First month's free if you enter the coupon code FRIEND. Go to zenparentingradio.com. Time is at a premium these days, which is why we're delivering help and hope right to your inbox. Sign up to receive Zen Parenting Moment, a quick read two times a week that helps ground you and remind you of what you already know. Go to zenparentingradio.com to subscribe. A special shout out to the guys or for women who want to share a pretty great opportunity with the men in their lives. Men Living is committed to improving men's lives through connection. Included in our program is a low-pressure, 75-minute weekly virtual gathering for men to give and get support and build friendships. If you want to learn more, you can head to menliving.org. Join us for our other podcast, Pop Culturing, where we take a Gen X view on movies and TV and have fun breaking down key moments and the themes that teach us what it means to be human. And don't forget about our founding partner, Jeremy Kraft at avidco.net. He is a bald-headed beauty, painting and remodeling throughout Chicago and area. His number is 630-956-1800. Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep on trucking.